It's Wednesday, March 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo continues to be in hot water as a third woman has come forward to allege unwanted advances and sexual harassment. Cuomo now faces an investigation by the New York Attorney General and also calls for his resignation from both parties. David Friedlander, contributor to New York Magazine, joins us for how Cuomo is trying to navigate these scandals as his political future called into question. Next, the market for a type of new digital asset known as a non-fungible token, or NFT, has exploded. These NFTs can be anything from digital art, sports cards, or even pieces of land in a virtual environment. And they're all authenticated by blockchain, which proves you own it. Recently, a 10-second video artwork that was originally bought for $67,000 sold for $6.6 million. Elizabeth Howcroft, reporter at Reuters, joins us for how NFTs are booming right now. Finally, researchers are looking to disease-resistant patients in hopes to expose weaknesses in COVID-19. Studies are being done to identify people who were heavily exposed to the virus but never came down with it and also had no antibody. David Cox, freelance journalist at the BBC, joins us for how scientists are looking for COVID's weak spots. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. These allegations are very serious uh, against Governor Cuomo. Uh, made by serious individuals and deserve a serious and independent investigation. Joining us now is David Friedlander, contributor to New York Magazine. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is facing a series of sexual harassment allegations. We're up to three women now. The latest said that Cuomo inappropriately uh, grabbed her and kissed her on the cheek at a wedding. So we're hearing a lot of different things. And what we're also seeing is increasing calls for Cuomo to either resign. We're going to have an investigation by the attorney general. Uh, I mean, there's really just a lot going on. And what's happening behind the scenes with Andrew Cuomo and his team is kind of a mishmash also. Some are very worried. Some are thinking that this could blow over. But his political future is being called into question right now. And, uh, you know, you've written extensively about this now. There's this other wrinkle, too. You know, he, he there's a lot of people that don't really like him in the area when it comes to the state Senate and the assembly. So there's just a ton of stuff going down. David, help us walk through some of it. I mean, as you say, there are currently three uh, allegations of, you know, what I guess we'll call sexual harassment. I think most people expect more to come somehow. There's just not a lot of goodwill with regards to Cuomo in the legislature. I mean, he has a reputation of being a bully, being a control freak, of calling people at all hours of the night and berating them or demanding things from them, making them do stuff. And same on a sort of staff level. So now that he's on the ropes, I think, you know, a lot of lawmakers are sort of quite content to let him twist on those ropes or, or even, you know, get their own shots in. Just because there isn't a lot of love for him there, doesn't seem like he was going to come in and save him. And so the real question is whether or not there's a sort of enough of a support for removal in the state legislature, which is democratically controlled and by supermajorities in most cases. How does the Democrat Party figure into all of this? So, I mean, I think there's sort of two questions there. There's a sort of his support from the state party and then, of course, his support for national Democrats. I think both of those are like a little less complicated than the sort of state government dynamic. The state party here in New York is just a whole, you know, subsidiary of Cuomo, and they'll be the last ones to sort of leave. 
you know, the National Party, I think, is a little bit different. I mean, no, you know, here we are at this moment with the COVID relief bill coming and vaccines, and you know, nobody wants a New York governor to be a distraction. Certainly not Joe Biden, who is a close ally. Um, certainly, certainly not Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, who, although is, isn't, I don't think, particularly close to Cuomo, is also going to be on the ballot in 2022. And certainly doesn't want Cuomo next to him bringing his numbers down. So back to kind of these allegations and how Cuomo has handled these. You know, he's released a few statements. He he apologized if he made anybody feel bad or, you know, inappropriate. He said he was being playful at certain moments and that he works so much. He considers uh, staffers and other employees there, you know, friends. How has this handling been as far as his statements go in, in reaction to these allegations? Not great is the sort of short answer. He kind of came up with a statement originally When the very first allegation surfaced, I should say, they sort of denied it outright, said they even acknowledged it. And someone leaked the personnel file of the accuser to sort of make it seem as if she were, you know, a little bit not exactly steady or something. When these latest allegations came, I mean, they've just been sort of coming out with sort of statement after statement, and none of them have quite answered the question. I think the first one said, you know, this is all we have to say about it. We're not going to answer any more questions at this time. And, And then it just kind of went on from there. This was clearly a case where it was supposed to be referred, the sort of inquiry was supposed to be referred to the attorney general, and and Cuomo tried to prevent that from happening and thought someone else should do it. And then eventually, after sort of a long day of many statements and much back and forth, he ended up with this really long statement that, as you say, was kind of talking about his relationships with his staffers and how he likes to be playful and it's banter. And it was just cringe inducing was the only sort of (laughs) phrase that came to mind. Yeah, definitely. What's the plan now? He obviously they're going to be pushing back on these allegations. They have to wait for this investigation to go through and see what happens in that report. But uh, I mean, they're just going to be trying to avoid the issue. I mean, it's going to be very hard to, you know, you can only talk about vaccines and and, uh, reopening the state so much to try to avoid this. They're not talking about anything right now. And that, that's sort of the problem. I mean, I think that people who are kind of on the fence about whether or not these allegations warrant removing a governor are sort of growing alarmed to the fact that the governor's been in a bunker for the last, I don't know, however many days it's been, four or five days, you know, hasn't done any public events, hasn't met the press, not doing anything. So I think this current situation is not tenable. I mean, he's going to have to come out at some point. I think we just have to wait to see if more news drops. I mean, I think that if there aren't further damaging stories, I think they, and you know, maybe the attorney general's investigation finds bad behavior, but not criminal wrongdoing. Maybe they think that they can sort of gut it out and run for reelection in 2022. But boy, that will be a bloody, bloody fight. David Friedlander, contributor to New York Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. The kind of assets that can be NFTs are actually really varied. Uh, Digital art is a major example, as you say, but they can also be things like a patch of land in a virtual world environment or a digital collectible item, sort of like trading cards or even exclusive use of cryptocurrency wallet name. Joining us now is Elizabeth Howcroft, reporter at Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. There's a lot of buzz going on right now about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. 
So these are kind of a type of digital asset. It's a way to monetize really digital art. And this is authenticated on blockchain. You know, you get your token. It proves that you own whatever this piece of digital art could be. And we're hearing stories of these types of things being sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. One of the stories we just heard was a 10-second video by an artist named Beeple. It was sold to a Miami-based art collector. He bought it for $67,000. Mind you, it's a 10-second video artwork, right? And it was sold for $6.6 million. So right away, people's ears perk up and they're like, what is all this stuff? What are we talking about? So Elizabeth, help us walk through some of this. What is non-fungible tokens? What are these NFTs and this digital artwork that we're dealing with now? So as you say, NFT stands for non-fungible token. And this phrase non-fungible just means that unlike most digital items, which can be endlessly reproduced and copied, each item that's made as an NFT is unique and has only one true owner whose status as the owner is authenticated by blockchain technology. So the blockchain acts as a kind of public ledger that verifies that they're the owner. The kind of assets that can be NFTs are actually really varied. Uh, digital art is a major example, as you say, but they can also be things like a patch of land in a virtual world environment or a digital collectible item, sort of like trading cards, or even exclusive use of cryptocurrency wallet name. It's a really varied area, but yeah, as you say, digital art is uh, definitely catching some headlines at the moment. Now, what kind of value, and I, I know a lot of this can be very subjective, but what kind of value does this hold? You said this an NFT could be a patch of virtual land in a game or something like that. What kind of real value does that hold? I know the blockchain, that whole part of it shows that there's an owner and all that, but how does that propel it to be so valuable? Well, I think one of the reasons why people are so interested in NFTs is because they raise really big questions about what we mean by value. And people aren't really sure how to judge the value of these things. But one reason a lot of enthusiasts who I spoke to said that they do have value and that, that they merit the sort of prices that they're going for is that these are items or assets that exist in the online realm. And for most of us, that's where we're spending most of our lives. Actually, a few people all gave the same example, which is if you're spending all your time on the Internet or sitting behind your computer and you want to splash out on something, why buy an expensive gold watch that none of your friends are going to see that doesn't exist in, in your online life when you can buy something that actually does exist in that world? And that's the world where you're spending your time. So that's some people's rationale for it. Give me a few more examples. In your article, you mentioned a clip of LeBron James doing a slam dunk. It sold for $208,000. So this kind of got started for the U.S. National Basketball Association Top Shot website. So people can kind of make video highlight clips and sell those. The NBA gets a cut of that. They get royalties off of that. I mean, this is just kind of an example of how people are creating these clips, this digital art, however you want to call it, and then making money off of that. So NBA Top Shot is a really interesting example. It's a really big platform that's actually been credited with bringing a lot of new people into the NFT space. As you say, people can buy, sell and trade these NFTs in the form of video highlights of key basketball moments on this site. And the NBA gets a royalty on every sale. To give you an idea of the rate at which that's grown, sales on this site for February alone were nearly 200 million, having increased nearly fivefold from January, where it was 44 million. So, so the rate of growth on a site like this is really huge. There's a lot of excitement around it. There's these people that are kind of already in this realm. There's a lot of people that are looking at this speculatively, you know, hey, maybe I can deal in some of this. There's real art dealers kind of getting into this realm. So it is a growing area. 
But there are investors that are urging caution. You know, there's a lot of money flowing back and forth on all this stuff. They say that this could represent a price bubble in the future. Do these digital pieces of art and whatnot hold their value over time? These are big questions that are really unanswered yet. To me, it seems that there's not just one big driver behind NFTs, but rather they come at the center of a number of different things that are going on at the moment. They could be benefiting from the hype around cryptocurrencies and blockchain, as well as the idea of virtual reality, maybe being able to one day create online worlds in which these items would be valuable. The sort of explosion of interest in this area has also coincided with the surge in retail trading. So people sitting at home and speculating on markets. So that has made a few people sort of concerned that this could be a bubble. And and one person I spoke to who'd been in the market for a while actually says in the article that he thinks it could be a bubble. Also, the fact that it's sort of driven by hype in a way means that there's also risks in the sense of possible fraudsters in the market, particularly as a lot of people are operating under pseudonyms. So it's a sort of risky area. Elizabeth Howcroft, reporter at Reuters, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. There's been reports of maybe around a thousand couples, like sort of around the world, where one partner has got COVID-19 and often had it quite badly, and the other partner, despite being like sort of repeatedly exposed, has not had any trace of the virus like so whatsoever when they've done lots of antibody testing in like their blood they haven't found any levels of any antibodies joining us now is david cox freelance health journalist at bbc and other outlets thanks for joining us david thanks so much for having me on the show wanted to talk about disease resistant patients to COVID-19. You know, as this whole thing has been started, you know, going on, we've been really learning about COVID in real time as it's been happening. You know, we're a year, a little more than a year into it, and we're finally getting a handle on things with treatments, with vaccines, but we still need to find out more about it and also in the efforts to prevent this from happening again. So right now it's kind of a contrast in studies. We're trying to find people that are resistant to this disease, but in doing that, we also have to look into why people are extra susceptible to this disease. So I know there's a few studies that are going on right now about all of this. David, help us uh, walk through some of it. Even before the pandemic happened, there was a team, there's been a, a whole collection of scientists all around the world who've been looking into people who have unusual resilience against illnesses ranging from heart disease to Lyme's disease to Alzheimer's and trying to work out the genetic factors which make them resilient. Because if you can identify those genetic factors, you can then use them to develop treatments. And this is particularly interesting because this is what actually led to the first breakthrough for HIV 20 years ago. They managed to find one person who was actually resistant to the HIV virus. He had this mutation which prevented it from binding onto his white blood cells, which meant he could never actually get properly infected with the virus. And that was what led to the first treatment for HIV. And so basically, as soon as the pandemic began, like, so this whole like, sort of series of scientists around the globe began wondering, are there people out there who are resistant to COVID-19? And if there are, like, so then we can perhaps find those mutations and use them to create antiviral drugs, which can help protect against COVID-19 and also future pandemics. So there's a number of studies going on like, so at the moment. One of the most interesting is there's been reports of maybe around a thousand couples like, so around the world where one partner has got COVID-19 and often had it quite badly. And the other partner, despite being like, so repeatedly exposed, has 
not had any trace of the virus whatsoever. When they've done lots of antibody testing in their blood, they haven't found any levels of any antibodies. So this suggests that they have some kind of mutation which is preventing them from getting infected with COVID-19. So at the moment, scientists are basically trying to do lots of genetic sequencing of those people to try and find out, you know, what is it about them which makes them resilient. So when we look at these people that we suspect have this resilience, we're looking at a few different things, so it can get a little wonky and technical, but they've already seen an association between blood types and getting seriously ill from COVID. There's also, uh, obviously, that you mentioned these uh, genetic mutations that people have, and these also these things called autoantibodies that are all part of this. So uh, what are we learning about these individual portions of it? What people are looking like so far with the studies of resilience is, is there some kind of mutation which basically prevents the virus from being able to get into people's cells? If there is, then lots of pharmaceutical companies can go forward and try and find a drug which mimics the effects of this particular mutation. Like right now, lots of these studies are still very much lots of ongoing. Like there's another one of lots of um, people over 100. Like so there's like a group of people over 100 who only had very mild cases of COVID-19 and they're sequencing the genomes of these people. So we're going to find out the results of these probably over the next six months, lots of to a year. Like so far, we don't have any major findings on that side of things. But what we do have, which is the outliers at the opposite end of the spectrum, people who are unusually susceptible to COVID-19. And this is where the stuff about autoantibodies like comes in. So scientists are also very interested in people who are, say, like 20, 30. And most of those people, you'd only expect to have a mild case of COVID-19. And some of these people seem to be unusually susceptible, like they end up in intensive care. So what is it about them which is making them particularly susceptible? So one of the reasons like so for this, which we do know so far, like the biggest findings have come so far on the susceptibility side of things is that the body has lots of its own lots of internal alarm system against viruses. So whenever like a virus gets into the bloodstream, there's basically this protein called interferon. And that's like the body's like alarm signal that something is wrong. So cells released interferon and it tells everything else in the body that there's a virus here and we need to fight it. But now some people like of, of all ages like of basically are susceptible because they have a mutation which means they can't produce interferon or they have these high levels of antibodies in their blood which basically remove interferon. So that alarm signal never sounds and that's why like so they end up having a particularly severe reaction to COVID-19. You know, you're mentioning the interferon, right? So they can use that information to make medicines, to make treatments, to help on that side so that, you know, maybe somebody doesn't get as severe an illness from COVID-19. Exactly, exactly. I mean, so what they're hoping really with the next pandemic is that, you know, we will have better diagnostic screening programs. So in the early stages, we'll be able to identify all the people who might be susceptible to this virus who have these problems, like so we're producing interferon, and then they can give them artificial interferon, which will protect them and prevent them from getting a severe infection. So that's one of the big ways where these studies of susceptibility will come in. With the studies of resilience, hopefully that will enable us to find lots of better drugs which can mimic the effects of these resilience mutations. And then that will be treatments which can be applied to everyone in the future. David Cox, freelance health journalist at the BBC and other outlets. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.